Well, good morning, Evie Free. This is a very exciting morning. And, um, you know, we have a wonderful Evie Free family here, and I thought it would be appropriate for us to introduce another wonderful family to you, the McWaters family. Very excited. This is Darren, Shannon, and I'm going to let Shannon introduce the kids. Hi, this is Will. He's 10. This is Hank. He's 14. This is Lily, and she's 11. And that's Jack, and he's 16. Yeah. We're very excited. Listen, we don't want to take too much time. We want to let uh, Darren get to the word, and so let me pray for him. So, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the McWaters family. Lord, we just pray your covering over them. Would you bless them and guard them and protect them? And, Father, for this morning, as Darren opens up your word, Lord, we pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that you would open us up. Let us hear what you want us to hear. Help us to be doers of the word, Father. So we love you. Would you bless Darren during this time? Speak through him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome, Darren. Thank you. Well, say what you want about me. Say what you want about me, but that's a pretty great family. You got the opportunity. I mean, I'm voting for them. That's all I'm saying, you know? It's a, it's a great... And she didn't, she didn't say this, uh, but I'm 43, so there's that. She knows. She knows that. She just didn't say it. We're in John chapter 12 this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 12. It's exciting to be with you this morning and have the opportunity to open God's Word. We are uh, just a couple of weeks now away from Easter, and so if you're like me, there is a sense of anticipation and expectation as we sort of come into the season about everything that will sort of unfold in the coming weeks. And um, it's interesting, even just being a Christian, even if you're not a Christian, if you're someone who's an American, you sort of see that there are rhythms uh, with regard to this time. You know, people start to wear shirts this color. There's a lot of chocolate outside, you know, whatever. There's, uh, there, there's all kinds of things that are moving. We have these expectations as followers of Christ that Easter will be a time of celebration. We look forward to celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We look forward to Good Friday, a time to reflect and sort of respond to the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. But what we don't have the opportunity to do or what we, what we don't do very commonly is to stop and think about what the expectations of the Lord Jesus look like coming into Easter. What, what was on his heart? What was on his mind as he came into this, uh, into this time period? You know, we're in the midst of a series over the next couple of weeks called With Great Expectation. And this morning I would like us to take a minute through the study of God's word, the speaking of his spirit, to really reflect upon Jesus' sense of expectation as he came into Jerusalem knowing that he was headed to the cross. In John chapter 12 we see this really uh, incredible passage where um, it's right after the triumphal entry and Jesus is with his disciples and it says that some Greeks come and they ask the disciples if they can have a moment with Jesus. They want to speak and talk with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't immediately respond to them. In fact, the text doesn't show us him responding to them at all. But instead, it's like when the Greeks come and ask, there's sort of a light bulb that goes on. There's like a spark that fires in the heart and mind of the Lord Jesus. And he turns and he starts to speak about what lies ahead. And it's incredibly insightful to give us a glimpse into the expectation of Christ. Let's read this text together, and then we'll sort of walk through it. This is John chapter 12. We're going to begin this morning in verse 20, and it says this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. 
So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It's kind of amazing. It's kind of an amazing response by Jesus. We see these Greeks come. They want to have a conversation with him. And it's almost like he turns and we just get this glimpse into what he's thinking and his expectation as he goes forward. You know, I'm the kind of person who uh, doesn't really want to know too much about what lies ahead. You know what I'm saying? I don't need a lot of foreshadowing. I kind of just want to walk into my life and sort of be surprised by things. But I grew up in a home where my mom, my mom had this like tendency to do this thing where, um, you know, we'd come to a Saturday, and as a kid, I'd be looking forward to the Saturday. I had video games I wanted to play, or people I wanted to hang out with, or places I wanted to go, things I wanted to do. And my mom inevitably would do this thing where uh, we'd sit down at the breakfast table, and she would go, today is going to be a, a very long day with a lot of work. And I'd be like, what? Why, why are you telling us this? She's like, we're going to vacuum every floor in the house and then we're going to mop, and we're going to dust every surface, and we're going to move every knickknack, and it's going to take all day, and it's not going to be fun, you know? And she'd like lay out this whole thing that just sounded miserable, and I'd say, Mom, don't tell me that stuff in the morning. If, even if that's true, just, I just sort of want to be crushed by it as we go along, you know what I mean? I don't want you to tell me that in a day. Now I, it's like all I know is ahead of me, I just got this miserable day. Like, just sort of let me be surprised by the misery in an ongoing way. I don't like that sense of foreshadowing. I don't like when people go, hey, just so you know, this is going to be gross, right? I I just sort of want to be surprised by it. And so it's interesting that Jesus, when he thinks about what lies ahead, he's just come into Jerusalem. These Greeks have come to talk to him. And as he reflects and sort of speaks audibly about what lies ahead, it's really interesting that in light of the fact that he knows point blank that death and suffering and difficulty lies ahead. There is still in his words and in what he communicates here a sense of expectation, a sense of anticipation that he knows what's coming and he's not daunted by that, but he's excited for what God is about to do in and through him. Jesus starts in the place where God always starts. Everything that God has ever done and everything that God ever will do begins in the same place Jesus begins as he reflects here. It begins with his own glory. Jesus looks here. They say, oh, these Greeks want to talk to you. And it says, Jesus answers them and says, the hour has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. Just think about that for a second. He begins with the glory of God. And that's important for us because everything that God does, everything that God is about, everything God has created, everything that God sustains and upholds is for his glory. Everything he does is for his glory. And so we get a sense when we're trying to decide, is this of God, is this not of God? Is this him moving? Is this something else? We can use as a test that the movement of God, that the power of God is always focused on the glory of God. So as Jesus thinks about what lies ahead, the cross, the resurrection, his first thought, the first response is, this is a time for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's interesting that he says, the hour has come, because if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know there are many times that he said previously, his hour had not come, right? When his mother looks at him and she wants him to perform the miracle, he goes, it's not my time yet. There are people, it says, that wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. So it's significant, and I don't know if, if the, the arrival of the Greeks is a, you know, a prophetic moment or if it's just a trigger in his mind, but as they come and, and want to speak with him, there is a movement in his heart and mind in which he said, the time has arrived. I mean, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. Everything has been leading to this ultimate moment where I'm going to enter into Jerusalem and the Father will be glorified. It's not only interesting that he says the hour has come or the hour has arrived, it's also interesting that he uses the title for himself the Son of Man, because that is a title for the Messiah that was absolutely imbued with all kinds of messianic power, right? Daniel 7 talks about the Son of Man. Let me read this to you. In Daniel 7, which would have been a familiar text to those who were waiting for the Messiah, it says this, Daniel seven thirteen, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, when he refers to himself as the Son of Man, everybody who's listening, anybody who overheard that would go, that is a messianic reference to glory and power and dominion that is endless, that all peoples from all nations on earth will come and bow down before the Son of Man, as we see in Daniel 7. Jesus says, the time is here for the Son of Man to be glorified. He is focused on his glory. And for Jesus, the glory of himself and the glory of the Father are the same thing. Part of the Godhead, the Trinity, when he talks about his glory, he's always talking about it in association with the glory of the Father as well. John chapter 17, verse 1, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, well, it says in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. When Jesus thinks about Easter, when he thinks about his death and resurrection, his mind first goes to glory. What's he doing? What's he expect? He expects the Father to be glorified in and through him. That's the first expectation we see in John chapter 12. The second expectation we see is the expectation of sacrifice and death. If there's any question in your mind about whether or not Jesus expected Jerusalem to be a difficult place to go, if there's any question in your mind about whether or not Jesus 
came to die. It's very clear in what he says next. Back to John chapter 12. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It seems like an interesting transition, doesn't it? He talks about the Son of Man being glorified, and then he gives us an illustration about a seed. He says, the Son of Man will be glorified. He says, if a seed doesn't go into the ground and die, then it remains just a seed, right? Interesting to look at. You know, it's got a function, but it can't truly fulfill what it's intended to do until you part ways with it, you put it in the ground, and then what happens is reproduction. The seed is designed to give way to fruit. The seed is designed to disappear in light of new life. Jesus is not only expecting for the Father to be glorified, for he himself to be glorified through the death and resurrection of himself, but he's also expecting to sacrifice, to give himself a way to die. Listen, some people will go, oh, isn't it such a shame, you know, that Jesus was murdered or that Jesus was tricked by Judas or that the chief priests and the Romans, they conspired against him and he lost his life and isn't that so sad? Listen, Jesus wasn't surprised by his death. He wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't befuddled by that. They didn't sort of trick him and trap him. Jesus went to the cross. He went to die. It's really clear in the Gospels. There are multiple places where Jesus looks at his disciples. Like, for instance, Mark 8.31. In Mark 8.31, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, point blank. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. No less than three times in the book of Mark does Jesus point blank tell them, we're going to go into Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. And it's interesting because every time he does that, the disciples are like, huh? Like they don't get it, right? They don't understand what he's saying, but Jesus isn't surprised by the sacrifice that awaits him in Jerusalem. He's not surprised by it because it was part of his plan from the get-go. Jesus went to the cross to plant his life as a sacrifice for others, that in his death and resurrection, life could be extended to the rest of us who were dead in our sin. Jesus knew that we were separated from him. He knew there was no way we could ever have a relationship with the Father because the Father is holy and we were lost and dead in our sin. Psalms 5 says the wicked can't dwell in God's presence. Jesus came so that in his death he could extend to us resurrection life. Resurrection life was his purpose. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, says. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus has been raised, and he's just the beginning of the resurrection life to come. Jesus expected and anticipated the glory of God. He expected and anticipated to sacrifice himself that like a seed that only sort of finds its fulfillment in losing itself in new life, 
he himself would give himself away to resurrect us from our death and sin. Not only that, look at what he says next in John chapter 12. He not only expected the glory of God and to sacrifice himself, but tied with that sacrifice is a demonstration. A demonstration. It was part of the expectation about Easter that Jesus had. Part of what he went to do, what he anticipated doing, was to set an example. Look at what Jesus says. Back to John 12. He says in, um, in 23, excuse me, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now listen to this. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. And he came not only to sacrifice himself, not only to glorify the Father first and foremost, but additionally he came to show us what life could be. By living a life where he never failed to glorify God in thought, word, deed, and attitude, he set a pattern for us, a picture for us of what our lives were created for. A life of perfect worship. Ceaseless worship is what Jesus lived. And in a sort of a pattern-making mode, he also sees that by giving up his life in sacrifice, he's setting an example for us. And he says, if you would be my followers, you have to be willing to turn loose of your life. If you try and hold on to it, you'll lose it. And it's only in the losing of it, the planting of it in the ground, that you find something that goes on and on and on. The nature of a seed is to give way. Its loss is productive. What feels like loss is actually triumph. Expansion, reproduction. Unplanted seeds will never be anything more. An unplanted seed can never be anything more. I mean, you can look at it, you can study it, you can go, this is a cool seed that has a lot of potential, but if you don't plant it, that's all it can be. And it's only in the planting of the seed that the seed then has the potential to go on forever in reproduction, in replication. Jesus is setting a pattern for us. A seed on a shelf is only a waste of potential it's a fundamental, it, it, it is a waste of potential and it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of the seed. I, uh, I bought a pair of brand new tennis shoes, right? You, don't, you probably don't care about this, but I bought a new pair of tennis shoes just as a, new, a way of example. They're white tennis shoes. I really like white tennis shoes and I've really wanted a pair of white tennis shoes for a long time. That might seem weird to you, but I wanted these shoes. I found the ones I wanted. I got a little bit of money at Christmas time and so I, I went and I bought these white tennis shoes and they are so cool. I'll wear them for you sometime. But... Um, <laughs> These white tennis shoes, I really love them, but the, the problem is, and well, I mean, the problem with these white tennis shoes is I can't wear them, right? I can't wear them because if I wear them, the moment I walk out of the house with these white tennis shoes on, they stop being so cool. Then they get dirty, right? They get dingy. My kids will inevitably stand on them. I'll get ketchup on them, you know, who knows what. But the only way for me to continue to enjoy these white shoes the way they currently are is to leave them alone, right? So they're sitting in my closet, and even though I love those white shoes, and they're exactly the shoes that I wanted, I, I can't put them on my feet and wear them out, or I ruin them. And you might look at that and go, well, that seems stupid. You're right, it seems stupid. I get it. But you know, the reality is that for many of us in this life, that's exactly the way we look at who we were created to be. We go, oh, I really love this life. I really love being able to have all these experiences and know people, and I love the power that I can accumulate, and I love the money I can put in my bank account, and I love the, you know, the prestige that comes with people sort of respecting me and whatever. We, and we sort of have this life, and we just want to hold on to it. 
We just want to get more and more and more stuff, and we just want to cling to that. And if we do, here's the thing. You can hold on to that stuff, but in holding on to your life, you never fully realize the potential of all that your life was created to be. And it's only when you turn loose of yourself, it's only when you turn loose of yourself that you fully understand the glory that can be created for God in and through you. It's only then you can truly understand the purpose for which you were created when you stop clinging so tightly to yourself, but you turn it loose like a seed. It's only when I take those white shoes out of the closet and I put them on my feet and I walk around with them that they actually become shoes and not just like a piece of art, you know what I'm saying? As art, they're not actually very good art. In my closet, that's kind of a stupid art installation, right? When I put them on my feet and I walk around in them, they become what they were built to be. We are built to serve. We are built to worship, to glorify God. And Jesus says, if you'd be my followers, you have to follow my example. I'm coming to glorify God by laying down my life and I'm modeling for you what life is intended to be. Give yourself away. It's exactly what Jay was talking about a minute ago. When we talk about loving our city, we could stay in this building, couldn't we? And we could talk about religious stuff and we could have great religious meetings and we could all just sort of pat each other on the back for how spiritual we are. And, and that would be something, but it wouldn't be what the church is intended to be. The church is not intended to be, a, a, well, Brendan Manning says, it's not intended to be a, a trophy case for saints. It's intended to be a hospital for sinners. Right? This is a place that we've got to get out of. We've got to go out of this place in order to truly be the people God created us to be. It's only in giving ourselves away, painting the walls at a school or planting a community garden or pumping quarters into a laundromat for somebody else's clothes. It's only as we get out and we give ourselves away the way Jesus did that we start to understand who we were built to be, who he created us to be, the glory that's possible for God in and through us. Jesus expected to glorify God. He expected to sacrifice himself and he expected to set an example for us that we would imitate, that we would follow, that we would look to his example and go, that's how I want to be too. And unfortunately, we miss that sometimes. Back to John chapter 12. Jesus then has a moment of introspection. Look at what it says in verse 27. He says, now is my soul troubled. That word troubled, the verb there, basically means shock or agitation. It's not just like, oh, you know, I'm a little bit bothered by the fact that I'm going to be crucified. No, he's deeply, deeply agitated. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? If you have any question about the humanity of Jesus, understand that he's going fully God, but also fully man, to be crucified for people that won't even appreciate what he's done most of the time. He's going to die on behalf of those who will eventually use his name as a curse. And he's troubled. He's, he's agitated. He's in shock about what waits ahead of him. And he says, but what am I going to do? Am I going to ask God to let me off the hook, to get me out of this thing? No way, because this is the purpose for which I've come. This is the very reason. This hour that we finally arrived at is the reason I came to earth in the first place. I'm not going to ask to be out of it because it's the purpose. And then he refocuses himself. He refocuses himself the same way we refocus ourselves. You know, you may be here this morning and you're feeling a sense of agitation in your soul. You might be deeply troubled by things that are happening in your life, by things that you thought would go a different way. You might be full of fear. You might be full of despair. You might be full of worry and doubt. Your soul might be troubled in a deep way. And the only way for us to find resolution 
is to do exactly what Jesus does. He says, my soul is deeply troubled. What am I going to do? Ask to get out of this? No way. This is why I came. He says then, Father, glorify yourself. He's able to refocus himself by taking his eyes off of him and redirecting his attention back to the glory of God. You want to know how we recenter ourselves? In those moments where we're feeling afraid, in those moments where we're feeling agitated and sorrowful and doubtful and worried, we take our eyes off of this and we refocus our attention on the glory of God. Jesus says, Father, glorify yourself. And then we see this really beautiful and kind of intimate moment. A voice from heaven, an audible voice, the voice of God the Father says, I have glorified it and I'm gonna glorify it again. The people are like, what was that? They think maybe there's thunder, right? They hear a sound. They hear a sound, but they don't know what it is. They don't identify the words and the content in the message. They say, maybe that was thunder. Some of the people sitting there think maybe Jesus was spoken to by an angel. And they start to murmur about that. But what, what just occurred was the Father. We see this beautiful picture of Trinitarian love and support. We see the Father coming to Jesus in the midst of this troubled soul and saying, you want me to glorify myself? You want me to glorify myself in you? Hey, let me be really clear. I have glorified myself in you. I continue to be glorified in you, and I ain't gonna stop being glorified in you. I am proud of you. This is the Father getting his arms. I do this with my kids, right? I do this with my kids where I get my arms around my kids and I lean in real close. And if you were watching, you wouldn't hear the content of the message. I lean in close, I go, I'm so proud of you. I love watching you play volleyball. I cannot believe you aced that test. Whatever, right? So proud of you. The content of the message is not for people who are looking. But if you were looking, while you wouldn't get the content, you would absolutely see a demonstration, a public and clear demonstration of my affection for my child. Same thing's happening here. God speaks to Jesus, the content of the message is not for the public. None of them understand what God has said. They just think there was thunder or an angel speaking. The content is for Jesus, but the sound, the audible sound of it, is for the crowd. A seal of approval on the work of Christ. Jesus looks at the crowd and he goes, the voice you heard, by the way, the word that's translated voice in this text could also just be translated noise, right? The noise you heard was not for me. It was for you. And what Jesus is saying there is the content of that noise was for me, but the sound of it was God showing you that I'm his. Jesus goes on to continue with the idea of expectation. He says in verse 30, uh, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. And then he says this in 31, now is the judgment of this world. We're talking about the expectation of Christ, the glory of God, the sacrifice of his life, the demonstration of what life is intended to be by laying it down. And now he says, now is the time. This hour involves judgment. And you might go, oh, that sounds a little bit ominous. But listen, Jesus knew what to expect in the cross. It is a moment of judgment. We know that Jesus ultimately sits in judgment, but the cross itself is a moment. It's a, it's a crucial moment, a pivot point in human history. It's a pivot point in human history whereby all men and women have to make a decision. There is judgment required because at that point, people will either be saved by believing in the work of Christ or they will remain condemned and separated from God by rejecting that. John 3 makes this as clear as possible. John 3.18 says this, whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. There's that word. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, 
And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus expects the cross to be a point of decision for mankind, a point of decision where nobody is able to remain neutral, but everybody has to make up their mind about who he is and what he's done. It's a, it's a crucial moment, a moment of judgment. I, uh, I, I was a chaplain with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department for a little while, and uh, we got this call to go to Walmart. And it probably doesn't surprise you at all that we got a call to go to Walmart. We get lots of calls to go to Walmart. But uh, we get this call to go to Walmart, and when we get there, um, we get there, and there's uh, one of the ladies that works at the Walmart is out in front, and then there's another lady that's with her. And as the, uh, as the deputy gets out of the car, he says, how can I help you? And she goes, well, I need you to arrest this lady that's in, that was in our store. And the deputy goes, well, wh- why, uh, why should I arrest her? She goes, well, she took a picture of me. And the deputy goes, well, it's not against the law to take a picture of somebody. In fact, people are taking my picture all the time, and there's, I don't really love that, but I can't really do anything about it. And the lady says, no, you don't understand. She took a picture of me while I was at work. And the deputy's like, again, I'm at work, and people take my picture all the time. That's not against the law. I'm really sorry. Is there anything else? And she goes, no, you don't get it. She took a picture of me while I was at work, and it could get me fired. And the deputy's like, I don't think I know what you mean. And she goes, well, she took a picture of me while I was taking a nap. And she says, she's saying she's going to put it on some website called the People of Walmart, which is like a blog where they post pictures of people doing all kinds of crazy junk on the internet at Walmart. And I don't want to be on that blog. I don't want to have my picture there. And the deputy goes, wait, 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 back up. Well, I don't understand what happened. And she goes, well, I work in the area where, um, where people try on outfits, like in the changing area. I have a little desk there. And this lady came to try on some dresses, which I opened up a room for her to do. And then while she was in there trying on some clothes, I just decided to rest my head on the desk for just a second, you know. And I wake up, and this lady's standing over me laughing, taking a picture, and she says, I'm going to post that on the people of Walmart. So I called the cops, right? And the deputy's like, "Uh, again, this is unfortunate for you, but let me suggest maybe you shouldn't have been sleeping at work, you know. For this woman, that photograph was a pivot point, right? It was a crucial moment of judgment whereby everything was going to change. And she didn't like that. She felt kind of crushed under the weight of it. Jesus looks at the cross and he says, the hour has come for judgment. The very fact that the, the God of heaven would come to earth to take the sins of man upon himself is a judgment of a kind. The fact that we were incapable of saving ourselves, the fact that we were given life and breath, and yet despite the fact that God wanted us to have communion with him, we rejected him and went our own way. There is a sense of judgment just in the fact that Jesus had to come to rescue us. But there's also a sense of judgment in the fact that in his coming, Jesus was judged. Despite the fact that he had not done anything wrong, despite the fact that he lived a perfect life, it says in Isaiah that the iniquity or the sin of us all has been placed on him. That he died in our place. So when Jesus looks and expects judgment, it is both the the fact that he needed to come that is condemning to mankind, but it is also a sense in which by taking our sin upon himself, he takes the wrath of God upon himself. And we are free. That we are set free from the wrath of God, from the condemnation that belonged to us. Jesus expected the glory of God. He expected sacrifice. He expected a demonstration. And he expected that it would be a point of judgment. But not only that it would be a point of judgment, look at what else he says. Back to John chapter 12. He says, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Not only does he expect judgment, but Jesus absolutely is anticipating and expecting victory on the cross. 
victory in what he does there. The cross is to Jesus a conclusive moment in which he proves himself victorious over the usurper. That enemy, the devil, the one who accuses us constantly, the one who would like to pretend like he's the king of the universe, the one who would like to pretend like he's the God of all things, the one who is fooling himself to sit on the throne of this world, Jesus at the cross conclusively and permanently proves himself victorious over the devil. And he's looking forward to it. I think sometimes for me as a kid or even as an adult, there are these moments where I sort of think like, if I don't live a good life, then maybe Jesus is gonna lose. You know what I'm saying? Like if I'm not a good person, if I don't go to church enough, if I don't memorize enough Bible verses, if I don't put enough money in the offering plate or I don't volunteer enough or whatever, then maybe the devil wins. Can I just tell you that is absolutely terrible theology. It's theologically unsound in every way because look, the victory of Jesus does not depend upon our holiness. The victory of Jesus does not depend upon our efforts in any way. The victory of Jesus is assured, right? I don't have to wonder. There's not an outcome TBA, right? There's not an outcome, eternal conflict, sort of waiting to be decided in the future. No, the outcome is decided. The victory is assured. Jesus was triumphant on the cross, and Satan was cast down, amen. Jesus is excited. He's excited about that. I love the verse in uh, Colossians chapter two. Colossians 2.13 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He's looking forward to Easter and expecting victory. That that usurper will be cast down. And not only that, Jesus is expectant of the glory of God. He's expectant of sacrificing himself so that fruit can be produced. He's expectant of setting a demonstration, an example for us of what life is intended to be, giving himself away. He's expectant of judgment, a point of decision for mankind. He's expectant of victory over sin and death and over Satan. And he's expectant of gathering all people to himself. That for Jesus, Easter represents a gathering of people. And this is where we circle back to the Greeks. Remember those Greeks who were just like standing there? They were like, hey, we'd like to speak to Jesus. And he's like, let me say some things, right? It circles back around to the Greeks. This is what sparked in Jesus' mind when he began this monologue, and even a dialogue with the Father at one point. What sparked in his mind is he's recognizing that there is an expectation in the coming days of him being lifted up and drawing all people to himself. Back to John chapter 12. He says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That word lifted up is really interesting. It's, it's actually one word that's translated in English into two. The original word is the word hypsao, lifted up. And in that one word, we have almost an encapsulation of the whole gospel. Because in some ways, the word hypsao, that, that idea of being lifted up, he, he means it very literally. That Jesus will be lifted up on the cross like the serpent in the wilderness that the people of Israel had to look to in order to be healed of their snake bites. 
That that was a foreshadowing of the lifting up of Christ upon the cross. There is a moment coming, he expects it, in which he'll be lifted up literally and nailed to a cross. But that lifting up he's talking about means that and so much more. You see, he's also expectant of the lifting up that happens when the seed that was planted in the ground walks out of the tomb. The seed dies to produce fruit, but listen, Jesus doesn't stay dead. Jesus rises from the dead. He's lifted up. There's an illusion here. There's not even really any ambiguity about it. There is an absolute pointing of Jesus toward the resurrection. Not only is there a pointing of Jesus, when he talks about being lifted up, not only pointing to the resurrection, but talking about the ascension. That there's a day coming when Jesus will ascend and he will return to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us. The greatest high priest we will ever know. Reconciling us to God. Not only talking about the cross, he's not only talking about resurrection, not only talking about ascension, but again, to circle back around, when he talks about being lifted up, he's talking about glorification. It says in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself, that he became nothing, humbling himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he will be lifted up is an inevitability. And he's expectant. He's anticipating. He says, if I'm lifted up, when I'm lifted up, all men will be drawn to me. Why is that significant? Because here are these Greeks, right? And they're like, hey, we'd like to talk to Jesus. Can we talk to him? And Jesus goes, these guys, they want to talk to me, but they don't even know the kinds of things I'm going to do for them. They don't even know. They're going to get more than just an opportunity to talk to me. I'm going to adopt these guys into my family. Because in Christ... Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, we are all one in Christ. Galatians chapter three, verse 26 says, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring Heirs according to promise. Jesus says, the time has come for the Father to be glorified, for the Son of Man to be glorified. He starts with glory. I'm gonna give up my life so that fruit can be produced. I'm gonna set an example for mankind and call them to turn loose of their lives so they'll find it. The time of judgment is coming. A point of decision whereby men will be required to make a decision about me. Time of victory is coming where the usurper, our enemy, will be cast down and the true king will ascend to the throne. And a time is coming where I'll be lifted up in multiple senses, but the end result is that all men will be drawn to me. That all men will be drawn to me. Jesus knew what he was getting into. He wasn't surprised by Easter. He wasn't surprised by the cross. He wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't tricked. He went to the cross expecting all these incredible things. And when I think about it, when I reflect upon his expectation, it does some things in my soul. You know what I'm talking about? When I think about the fact that he was anxious and excited about glorifying himself and glorifying the Father, it, it brings me to awe. It stirs in me a sense of awe at his worthiness. When I think about his sacrifice, it stirs in me a sense of gratitude at how unworthy I am, about how deeply in need I am of rescue and reconciliation. When I think about him giving his life so that fruit could be produced, I find myself feeling grateful. When I think about his demonstration, that he was setting a pattern for me of sacrifice and service, it makes me want to imitate him. 
I'm anxious to follow the path that he set. When I think about his judgment, it draws me to confession, to humility, a a sense of recognizing that I'm powerless on my own to save myself. When I think about his victory, I feel a sense of confidence. I don't have to wonder how things are going to turn out, but the God I serve is victorious. When I think about him being lifted up to draw all men to himself, it wants me to declare that truth to every person I meet. It makes me want to tell everybody I bump into at the grocery store and the laundromat and in the parks and in the neighborhoods. I want everybody to know this Jesus who wasn't caught off guard by his death, but who chose his death. Jesus says in John 10, nobody takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and to take it back up again. Nobody puts the Son of God anywhere. He went to the cross for us, for the glory of God, to rescue us and set a pattern that we would follow, to draw men to himself. Will you pray with me this morning? It is deeply meaningful to me, Lord Jesus, that you expected these things. That you had clearly meditated upon and thought through all that would occur and all that would come as a result. That this is all part of your plan. And so awe and wonder confession, humility, imitation, all of these things, they pour out of me as I think about who you are and what you chose. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for loving us, for pursuing your glory and rescuing us from sin and death. Be glorified in this place, we pray. Amen.